Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. So thankful you're here. Welcome to week one of a series we're calling simply Jesus is Greater, which I hope just hearing that title alone makes you go, okay, I want more. I'm ready to hear more about that. We're, uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews together. Uh, we're not going to get through it all this, this iteration. You're going to have to stick with us probably for three years. I don't know. Can I sign you all up for that? Uh, what, what our habit has kind of been, just so you know, kind of letting you under the hood for a minute, uh, twice a year I take on uh, a book of the Bible and just really dig in and, and, and really try to uncover every stone and get underneath everything. And if you remember, we were in the book of Judges in the spring, which was a was a bear, but was a lot of fun. Uh, last, for the last four years, our New Testament book has been Romans. We finally finished that up. And so now, for the next couple of years, we're going to take on Hebrews. I think it's going to take us a couple of times. So uh, I'm just attempting this, this, uh, this fall to get through Hebrews 1 through 4, maybe 5 is kind of the goal. And so I think it's going to be a blessing to you. This is such a wonderful, theologically packed, just a rich book. One of those very wealthy books, if you will, in the New Testament. They all are, certainly, but this one is, is slam-packed. And the reason we've called it Jesus is Greater is because the key, really the keys under the doormat of this whole book happen right here in chapter 1, where we're going to spend some time today. You'll see, uh, as we read today, chapter 1 of Hebrews verse 4, it says this. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. This idea of superior, ultimate, greater than is a constant theme of this book. The writer of Hebrews has made it clear he wants us to know this Jesus is different. This Jesus is greater than. To the Jews who he's primarily writing to, the, 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 uh, the believing uh, Jews throughout the, the known world, he's saying, you might have some misunderstandings about who this Jesus is. I just want you to know he's greater than you think. He's far greater than you know. And so that's where we're going to spend time. And I pray and I know the better that you understand the greatness of your Savior, the more free you're going to feel, the more hope you're going to feel, the more joy is going to well up in you understanding who this God is and how much he loves you. This name this week, and you probably kind of started getting this as we sang today. These songs really were meant to line this up. Really putting, putting the, the ball on the tee, if you will, so we could batters up on this thing. We sang again and again, your name is the highest. Your name is greater. This week we're talking about the greatness of the name of Jesus. His name is greater. Now that might not seem like a big deal, but I want to read a couple of things to you. First of all, from, from one rabbi, he wrote this. Jews have always placed a great emphasis on naming a child. For in the name there lay the history and the past of the family and all of the hopes and blessings of the newborn's success in life. It meant a lot to name your son Jesus, Yeshua. That meant something. Names matter. And this name, Jesus, matters most of all. So here's the question for you today. What's in a name? Well, perhaps there's some names you're facing right now. I want to put a couple of things on the table, a couple of names that you're dealing with. Maybe a name like divorce. Maybe that's a name you're facing. And 
I want you to know something this morning as I'm going to repeat again and again and again through this whole series. Jesus is greater. He's greater. Maybe you're facing cancer. I want you to know something. Jesus is greater. He's greater. He's the great physician. He's also the God of the, and, and the one of peace. So whether he takes you through the valley or, 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 and, and heals you on the other side, either way, he's with you in the valley. He's your peace and your comfort and your joy and your strength. He is greater. Addiction, maybe that's your name. He's greater. He is our strength, our victory. Maybe it's death, death of a loved one. I want you to know something. This is as true as anything. Jesus is greater than death. That he has a plan, an eternal plan that's far beyond this little bitty glimpse of life we have here. Jesus is greater than death. Loneliness, Jesus is greater. He makes some great promises for those who are lonely today. It says in the Bible, he will never leave you nor forsake you. It also says he sticks closer to you than a friend. Loneliness, Jesus is greater. If you've got a bulletin today, or you're writing on something, or maybe you just want to make a mental note of this, you fill in the name you're facing. Fill in that name, and then I want you to just cross right through it, either on your pad or in your mind, cross right through it and say, Jesus, it is greater. I don't care what the name is. You could put anything on there. He's greater. He's greater, and that's good news because we're facing a lot. That's the theme. And this book, this book of Hebrews is a very unusual book, and I don't know if... Everybody cares about every little detail, but I'm convinced of something. More and more Christians are not in the Word of God like we ought to be. More and more we, we have a almost biblical illiteracy when it comes to the believing church, and that's depressing and sad. So bear with me as I give you some things, some teaching things in the midst of preaching, some things that are important for you to know. One being this book of Hebrews is a very unusual book. It's a letter, but it kind of starts more like... Um, more like a, a worship song, if you will. It's a letter to the to Hebrews throughout the known world, but it's unusual in that it doesn't really have a salutation. There's no, there's no particular recipients given. Uh, you could go to any one of the letters of Paul and one of the other letters, and you would see, from Paul to the church in Galatia, to those in Cappadocia, to those in Thessalonica, you'll see this. Here's who it's for, and here's who I am. Hebrews does not have either of those. Very unusual book. And it has led many scholars throughout history to, to question who exactly wrote this book. And this isn't something I'm going to come back to week in, week out, but just something for you to chew on. The majority view uh, among scholars is that it's Paul. That Paul is the author. There's a lot of Pauline themes here. Some others have, have said perhaps it's Barnabas or Apollos, as mentioned in other passages of Paul. Clement, even some Silas. I'm going to give you my viewpoint, take it or leave it, wrestle with it however you please. I believe it's Luke. And the reason I believe it's Luke is because, well, first of all, I wrote, I wrote an entire thesis on this in my master's program in seminary. This fascinated me. Who's, who's the autograph here of, Luke, of, of, of Hebrews? And here's what I found to be true. The book of Luke and the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews all start with four lines of classical Greek. The only classical Greek in the New Testament is in Luke, Acts, and mysteriously, Hebrews. Also, a lot of the Greek phrasing that you'll see in all three of these books are very similar. I will say this, it's possible that Luke was penning what he heard Paul saying. That's very possible, that he was the pen behind the preacher. I'm okay with that too. Here's what we know for certain above all of these things. 
that the church adopted this book early, used it often, and it is still being a blessing to his church today. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but here's one thing we know for sure, for sure, that is the Holy Spirit of God wrote it. All Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy says, and that is certainly true of this book. And we're going to dig in today and just see how important it is that we, we come under the authority and, and, and put all of our hope in this one who is greater, Jesus Christ. This is what it says uh, the writer here to Jewish background believers, he is here saying that we need to rightly see that Jesus is greater than all, including the angels. In fact, we just sang that. This idea that the angels even praise him, that they cry out holy. This was an important piece of what he's working on. And we can rightly see this too. Why is the name of Jesus greater? Let's get our heads around that together today. I believe the text is going to give us four reasons. The name of Jesus is greater than all names. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter, which is light work for those of you who have been walking with me for a little while. That's easy. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 1. It said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Listen to this sentence. This is maybe the most important sentence in all of chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you, you are the same. Your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve and for the sake of those who inherit salvation? God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Wow. This is Jesus. This is a glimpse into who he is. And there are many names given for who he is here. And there's at least seven, in fact. I'm going to wrestle through four and kind of lump these things together. That the name, first of all, that the name of Jesus is greater first because Jesus is the ultimate spoken word of God. He's the ultimate word of God. The word ultimate really fits well here because that's what he's saying. 
He's both the first and the last. He's, as Randy put earlier, the alpha and the omega. He's, he's the word. He's the word. And here, the writer makes it so clear. He says, starts off by saying, long ago, when God spoke long ago, that is, perhaps even in the beginning is somewhat implied, that Hebrews 1 has a sense of John 1 and Genesis 1 in its tone. That long ago God spoke through the prophets and he spoke through his word to his people. But in these last days. In these last days we have the spirit of God. In these last days we have Jesus. That he has spoken the full word. The, the, the fully revealed word has now happened in the person of Jesus. This is amazing stuff that he's saying. This is the ultimate nature of who Jesus is to us in his word. Jesus is the word, and this is, I just reflected on this. In John 1 1, here's what it says about him that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It goes on in verse 14 to say, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, this is a fascinating thing. That the incarnation of God, who we know as Jesus, that the Son of God incarnate is also, also often referred to as the Word. Now, that may sound very strange to you. And it is strange. Normally, I wouldn't say, you know, if I'm going to make a nickname for somebody. Randy, if I was going to nickname you, buddy, it probably wouldn't be some, like, uh, inanimate thing. Like, Word? I'm going to name you Chair. Hey, you're Chairman. Uh, like... Unless you're a guy who likes to move the chairs around, I'm not going to name you chairman. I mean, that's weird. Uh, I might say, you know, he's like, he's like a bear or something. Or he's, he's, he's really energetic, like a, like a golden retriever or something. I might would go with that. Something that moves about. We have to admit to name somebody the word is, is really strange. Except for that's the, the, one of the best definitions of his character. That it seems at the very beginning... and. The New Testament says it again and again that the Son was an active agent at creation. It says it here in our text. In, in verse 3, in fact, it says, or verse 2, it says, He created the world. How? It would seem that God spoke and that that word is Jesus. This is a wild thought. But it seems to be what's indicated here that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit were all there in Genesis chapter 1. You can see it already. The word there is Elohim, which means God, plural. And it also says, if you go back and look at Genesis 1, that the Spirit was hovering over the water. So here you see clearly Father, Spirit, and the Son seems to be the active agent when God says, Let there be light. That's the word. And that he's doing something else here at the point of John 1.1 where now the word of God, which is the power of creation, which is the power of upholding the world, has now become the power which saves. The power which takes on flesh and does the thing we couldn't do. We had no means to deal with our brokenness. Our guilt, our sin, our shame. When we come honestly to that, we know, what can I do about this? What sort of payment could I possibly make to a just judge? There isn't one. So the word of God became flesh. And Jesus spoke as the Father directed him to speak. 
This is the nature of who Jesus is in his ministry. Isn't this fascinating? That he is indeed the spoken word of the Father. Look at John chapter 12. It says, For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now let me say as an aside, I'd very much love to be able to say that too. I'd very much love to be able to say, as Jesus once said, what I say to you is what the Father tells me to say. What I say to you is what the Spirit of God has has, has given me the grace to say to you. I pray that's true, that my words would be the words of God. Now, I recognize something that what really, I think, above all things, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, he's not only the first word, he's the last word. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He gets all the words in between. That's the word. He's the word. And it made me think, and this is is kind of a silly way of thinking about it, but, but it helped me, and I hope it helps you, is that a lot of the arguments that I have in life, especially with my wife, I'm sorry this is true, I argue with her the most. I just do, and I bet, I have a feeling, you argue with your spouse the most. You're with them every day, probably. And every day, there's stuff you face. There's stuff going on. I have four children. At least one of them is going to create an argument in my life. They just are. They're going to do something. I didn't do it, but I'm going to feel responsible for it somehow. And I've noticed something. I I don't often get uh, a lot of the words in. I'm not really good at, uh, at getting into the argument. But you know what I really like to try to do is get the last word. It's really my goal, and isn't it yours, like when, when you're not doing it right, when you're not doing it right, and you're just trying to win an argument, and just so you know, this is an aside, not part of my preaching today, communication is not about victory. Good communication is about reconciliation. Good communication is about coming together of like mind. No one wins in that, no one loses in that. However, I like to win. I like to win in everything. And so sometimes when I'm not doing well, I try to get the last word. And she's not really happy with that either. So then we just keep doing last words over and over again until somebody finally falls asleep. It's not a very fun game. Made me think of this Jesus this week, though, who in all of the right ways gets the last word. In all of the right ways. And I love this picture that the the writer of Hebrews is putting forth here. This idea that sin thought it got the last word. This idea that Satan thought he got the last word. That there is an evil, there is a corruption in our world that is obvious, is it not? There is an obvious brokenness in our society. You call it what you want to call it. Some are like, I don't believe in these extra, uh, the, these, these supernatural things. You don't have to call it Satan, but you know it's wrong. You can look at the world and go, something has snapped and gone way off course. And it's been that way since the beginning of human history. Just so you know, it's not like it's way worse now. I think we're just way more aware of it. Some of the stuff we're dealing with now, guess what? They've dealt with in almost every culture before us. So don't think, oh man, we're the worst yet. No, we're just really getting more and more aware of it. And the world is more aware of it too because of these phones and because of this technology. We know when there's disasters in Haiti. We know when there's a disaster on the other side of the world. A hundred years ago, people didn't know. We're so aware. 
And Jesus says, in the moment of in that very place, he says, I'm going to get the last word. I got the last word when it comes to creation. I got the, or the first word. I got the last word when it comes to salvation. They thought they pinned me to a cross. They thought they put me in a tomb. I get the last word. Resurrection. I like that word. I like that word a whole lot better than death. I like resurrection. Don't you? I like eternal life. He promises that. I like that better than death. I'll get the last word, Jesus says. And this evil you see, it says in another passage of Scripture that creation is groaning for the return of Christ. And guess what? He will get the last word. So what do we do as his faithful few, as his faithful believers? We proclaim the word as, been, as has been proclaimed through his word here, as he proclaimed when he walked the earth. We are proclaimers of the word of God, and his word is greater. He'll get the last word. And I'm so thankful for that. Here's the second reason. He's the spoken word of God. Also, Jesus is the one and only Son of God. The one and only Son of God. Notice the word here, Son, throughout our text this morning. It's here four times, verse 2, 5, and 8. This is the idea of the Trinity on display. One of those very difficult things to work through. One of those places that I like to lean forward and look into and go, there's a bit of this that's so beyond me that it's proof for me that God is beyond my understanding. And some of you in the room, those logical types, those ones that would like to nail down every aspect of God, I don't think he intends you to be able to do so. I don't know if that, that hurts you, breaks you somehow. Well, I need to know all the answers. You don't even know all the answers about what's happening on earth. Forget about what's happening supernaturally. You have no clue, and none of us really can, that God could somehow be one nature, three persons. It's a baffling thought, and yet it's the picture of the Bible. The Trinitarian God is clearly on display. And Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Name the Son, it speaks of his divinity. This means the writer of Hebrews is making something really clear. Let's not put Jesus on the same line as the angels. Let's not put him in the same hierarchy as like our brother. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. Do you see this? This is the point, part of the point of here in Hebrews. And this is why as early as the first century, sure, but the, one of the early creeds in the early church is called the Nicene Creed. And here's what they said. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. This is 325 A.D. The Son of God, the begotten of, the, of God the Father, the only begotten, the very substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, begotten not made, of the very same nature of the Father. This is early, early Christian understanding that Jesus is the Son co-equal with the Father. And then the Spirit seems to be, just as Jesus seems to be the very spoken word of the Father, the Spirit seems to be the very presence of the Son. In fact, oftentimes in your Bible, you will see Him referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Now active in your life, believer. The Spirit of Christ. At work, His power at work in your life. Amazing. And if that wasn't clear, the writer of Hebrews says to this Jewish audience, these people that might be on the fence about some things, who have done a, a lot of work trying to understand the angels and all this, he says, let me, first of all, let me give you seven things about who He is. 
Seven things about who he is in verses 2 and 3. He says he's an heir, appointed the heir of all things. What Adam lost, now the second Adam has inherited, Jesus. Verse 2 also says he's the creator, the agent, in fact, of creation, the very catalyst for our being. Verse 3 says he's a revealer. That means now he's the one we can see. He's the image of the invisible God. Verse 3 says he's the divine imprint, divine character. The word there in verse 3 sounds, this is a weird thing to say, I have to admit. He says he's the exact imprint of his nature. That's a funny way of saying it. The word there in the Greek for exact imprint is character. Exactly where we get the word character. It's it's, it's a one-to-one. What he's literally saying is he is the, the character of God. I love what one writer says about this. He says, it's the same word you would use for the engraved character on a coin. That what Jesus is, and you can open up some money right now. We can't see George Washington now, but we can open up and see his goofy wig today on that $1 bill. We can see those coins, those imprinted coins and go, there's some, there's some dead guy. And Jesus is that and he's alive. The very imprint of the Father. He's our picture. He's, our, he's the character of God. Verse 3 goes on to say he's the sustainer, the one who upholds it. So not just this, friends. He created it. He also keeps it going. If you do just a little bit, just, to, just to research just a little bit into science, into to space, something that's always fascinated me. I, I was that weird kid that would go to my grandparents' house and get out the encyclopedia for the letter S. I love the letter S. Space, the final frontier. I open up space and look at all the space shuttles and, wow, moon landings and go, this is amazing stuff. I've always been fascinated by what we can't see, what's beyond. And some scientists will rightly say this, that there's things that are happening up there. There's some things that are happening. You can go microscopic, too into the human being and go, there's some things happening very tiny and very big that make a lot of no sense, okay? And just a little bitty tweak, just a little bitty something goes off and the whole thing unravels. It says that he, Jesus, the name above all names, holds it together. There's this fascinating thing he's doing that's helping us to not just literally explode. My atoms are doing what they're supposed to do. I don't know how to tell them to do right, but he does. This is fascinating stuff. He's the sustainer. Verse 3 says he's the redeemer, the purification for sins. He's entered his priestly role, no longer bringing a sacrificial lamb, but being the sacrificial lamb. And then lastly, he's ruler. Verse 3, ruler seated at the right hand of the Father. Now look, here's my seven statement picture. And then guess what he does? He follows it with seven statements from Scripture. Now, you can't tell me the Holy Spirit of God wasn't fingerprinting this thing. Let me give you seven character traits of God and then seven things out of the book of Psalms and out of the book of of 1 Samuel and these fascinating things to describe to you why he's more excellent. Now, I recognize something, church. I have to say, I have to put this one thing out. We as Christians, and I write many of you in the room are, We as the church don't have a tendency to think that Jesus is on the same level of angels. Not typically something we wrestle with. I think generally we understand as believers 
He's greater than them. But in Jewish culture, and what they're wrestling with as Jewish believers, this was a confusion. There was a really a, a lot of study. If you go look in the Talmud and some of, these, or, uh, some of these other documents outside of what they call the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, if you go look in some of these things, they have done a lot of what you would call angelology. There was a, a great study into the angels and what they were and trying to understand them. And I guess among them there was some confusion as to whether Jesus was the greatest of the angels. That he was something... He was something significant, but somehow in the hosts of angels. We only have three angels even listed, even named in the Bible. And trust me, there are a lot of appearances of angels, and only three are ever named. And I think that's significant because God, although angels are important and he made them, they're not really the big picture of this story. They're not even close. Only, we only see Michael and Gabriel and Lucifer named. Now, if you go to some of these other texts in Jewish culture, you'll see a right many more names. Whether they get those right, I don't know. I haven't done a great study on that. But to that audience, to the Hebrews, is written, his, na- his very name is more excellent than theirs. They're, we're not even talking about the same thing. And then he goes on to give you these seven things, first of which maybe is all you need. Verse 5 Who of any of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? None. None of them. Here are the seven scriptures that he brings out. And uniquely, they're all from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. I think that's significant because here, these Jewish people, these Hebrews that he's writing to, are obviously very much immersed in Greek culture. A lot of people think this book, actually, its first destination was probably Rome, where there's Greek and Latin spoken in this kind of polytheistic culture. To those people, they, they write this, You are my son, verse 5. That's out of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. So he's quoted Psalm chapter 2. In the next phrase, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, you, I will be to him a father. In the next one, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, let all the, earth, the, the, the angels worship him. And then Psalm 104, 104 says he makes his angels winds and ministers. Look, Christ can't be one of the angels. He's the one who tells them what to do. Psalm 45, to who of the angels did he ever say, your throne will be forever, and yet Christ is this very ruler? Psalm 102, you laid the foundation. He's repeating himself here. Christ is creator. Angels are not. They're another of the creation. Psalm 110, and he sits at the right hand. He's the only begotten. The word here means single of its kind, one and only, unique. This is why this famous passage exists. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved loved this world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His one and only And he that has seen this Jesus has seen the Father. John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, Lord, show us the Father. It it would be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have you been, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been showing you. You spend time with Jesus, you're spending time with him. You're spending time with the Lord. Now, this is important stuff. 
I don't know who you're facing on a regular basis. In fact, I don't know how you've come in today. Maybe your background is kind of being shaken even as we deal with this. Maybe you have a different religious background. Maybe there's family members you have that are a part of, of, other, of other religions or other denominations. And, and perhaps on some level you're struggling with this. And this is important because we face people day in and day out that come with a lot of different faith backgrounds. I've run into a lot more uh, Mormons lately than I, I used to. I don't know. There's a pretty decent sized one right there in the neighborhood off of Winstead Road. Uh, I used to live right in that neighborhood, and there's a pretty good, I don't know if they call it, a, I don't think they call it a church, but I don't know. It's a, it's a big facility there for, for the Mormons. And here's something I want you to understand when you come in, into conversation with them is we don't believe the same things about Jesus. And this is, Jesus is really, just so you know, it should be obvious, but the Christ and Christian is the sticking point. It's the sticking point with all religions, okay? All other world religions. This Jesus, who we think he is, 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 is the pin on top. And we believe, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe he is the son of God. He is co-equal to the father. He, he is the word made flesh incarnate. That he also took on, he lived a sinless life and then took on the cross for our sake that we might be saved and we couldn't do it apart from him. And then he rose again from the grave and that is now, now he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father and has sent his Holy Spirit now to convict us, to comfort us. This is in a nutshell what Christianity is. I want you to know something that is not what the world believes about Jesus and any other faith. Or anybody of no faith. This is not what people believe about Jesus. So Mormons won. I wanted to give you just a handful of these. And I could go on all day. This would be its own study. Just so you know. is how to deal with Jesus against such and such. Alright. So with the Mormon faith. It is this. That he is the spirit child of the heavenly father and heavenly mother. The son of God was an actual product of divine procreation. So when the Bible mentions firstborn. It means it literally that he is a created being. Get that. He's not eternal. He did not exist prior to somewhere around the, the changeover from B.C. to A.D. That's when Jesus was created. Now that's a problem because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was right there in Genesis chapter 1. The Jesus of the Bible is not created. He has always been. If you're thinking of the question, who created God, you're asking the wrong question. And here's why. Because God, this God that we worship is not created. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. This is our God. And this is Jesus. So they believe he's a brother. That this is in fact, earth is in fact the world that Jesus is. The redeemer of this planet, if you will. And his brother, Lucifer, his brother, Lucifer, did not have the right strategy. And so Jesus won over in the strategic debate over how to deal with earth, if you will. This all sounds so wild to me. And yet there's a large group of people that believe this. And I'm not trying to belittle them. What I'm trying to do is give you tools so that you might say, me and you need to get on the same page about this Jesus. Because if we can get on the same page about who the Messiah really is, you can understand true faith.
Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah as, as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed. That now this Jesus is a lesser, though mighty God, a, a little g-god, if you will. They believe that he was born on earth, he's a mere human and not God in the human flesh. So this is something that's been a struggle throughout Christian history is this idea of what we would call modalism, that at the time Jesus was a human, he wasn't God. And the reason we do that is because it's illogical. But God doesn't care about logic. Of course, he made logic, so he's like, forget your logic. If I want to be God in the flesh and God at the same time, who are you to say? This is the Jesus. He's 100% human, 100% God. Am I blowing your mind yet? This is authentic Christianity, though, my friends. He's 100% God, 100% man, and always will be. And to say he's just a mere human when he's here defeats everything that's important about who he is. God and God alone is the just sacrifice for us. If he's not God, we're not saved. This is the problem with so many faiths. And they say very clearly this. I read John 1.1 to you earlier. In their translation of the Bible, the New World Translation, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And that's a problem. That's a big uh-uh. Huh? I could go on about that. I've done a lot of research on Jehovah's Witnesses. and These people are coming to my door more and more. I can't get them to stick around. Like, Can we just talk? I just want to talk. You're handing me a pamphlet. I want to talk about your pamphlet. They, they run from me. I think they're figuring it out. Like, I just, can you, I want to be one of you JWs. Can y'all talk me into this? They won't stick around. Maybe you can get them. I think I have pastor written on my forehead. I'm starting to believe that more and more. Just so you know, a growing, one of the growing, fastest growing faiths in all the world is Islam. Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet. I think their beliefs about Jesus are the most logical. They're, they're not so outlandish. They believe he's a great prophet, not the son of God. The fascinating thing is they actually, the Quran affirms the virgin birth. It affirms the miracles of Jesus. In fact, I, I, I'm pretty sure it even affirms that he will return. There's a lot of amazing things there, but their understanding of that is that, not, that he's not the son of God. In fact, that's a very blasphemy kind of thing to say is that Allah is more than one. The Trinity is really the problem for Islam. That Allah can't be more, he can't be son and spirit. So if I'm dealing with, with a, a Muslim and, and that, someone that's really into their faith, I, I really want to get into this idea, okay, well, why is, why is this Jesus different in your book? Why is he a unique? And if he's a, if he's a prophet and the Bible says, the Bible, just so you know, which was written the New Testament 600 years prior to the Quran, that should be some evidence, I think, of something that this book's a whole lot older. I know this, you're saying this is a, t- a second word, I guess, of God or a, a more uh, recent word. So, but, but the Bible again and again talks about this Jesus as saying and believing of himself that he was the son of God. And so if that's true, he's not a very good prophet. That's, all, that's the argument I want to try to get into. Is he's, a really, he's really tr- just not a good prophet. Because no prophets of old would say, you know who I really am? I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. Which John is pretty clear about. So many of the letters of Paul's. I would say all of the Gospels are pretty clear. Although others would argue otherwise. But I want to get into that conversation. Who is this Jesus really? Do you hear what I'm saying? No matter who it is you're talking about. What do they think about this Jesus? Why? Because his name is greater. 
Because the power of your salvation is in that name. And no other. There's no other name. Most of who you're going to run into, my friends, most of who you're going to run into are going to say Jesus was a good guy. Doesn't matter what they believe. They may be atheist, agnostic, un- I don't know. And I was raised this, but I'm just walking my life. Yeah, that Jesus is a pretty good dude, seems like. He helps some people. And to those kinds of people, I'm often going to reflect on C.S. Lewis's trilemma and say, well, how can you possibly say he's good? How can he be good? This is the argument of liar, lunatic, or Lord. So either he's a liar, which would not make him good. Either he said, I'm son of God, and he was lying about it, which means he's not good. Either that or he was a lunatic, which means you definitely shouldn't think he's okay. Or he's the Lord. Well, I don't want him, I don't want him to be Lord. Well, then quit telling people you think he's good. Just be honest. Just tell people, you know, that guy's crazy. Nobody wants to say that. Oh, Jesus is nuts. For some reason, even in the unbelieving world, people are reluctant to say Jesus is nuts. That name is greater. That name is something. Are you convinced? You can't change what others think. You can work towards it. You can pray for them. But I'm wondering this. Are you convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Are you convinced he's the very God of very God? Angels, forget angels being near on his level. He is God. Here's the third reason. Because Jesus, I just mentioned that, is the only Savior of the world. I could get all into other world religions conversations on this one too. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. A lot of what you'll run into is this idea that there are many roads that lead to heaven. And that is simply not authentic Christianity. I know that makes us very exclusive. I know that's what really bothers people about Christianity. But I can't let that affect me. I can't go, well, I wish we could be more inclusive. I can't because I have this. And this thing says very clearly, let me give you this verse in case you're missing it. Well, I don't even have it written. Here's it for you anyway. It says in John 14 that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> there's no getting around that. And, and there's other passages. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Jesus is the Savior of the world. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Acts writes in Acts chapter 4, Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is why this name is so important. This is why when you're dealing with your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, I don't care what they believe, what do they think about the name? Because there's no other name. I would very much like to be over this addiction. I would very much like to be over this sin area. There's no other name. I would very much like to have peace in my life, to have joy, to not be afraid of what's coming. There's no other name. No other name. Yeshua. God's salvation. Here's something to chew on. It's the exact same name as Joshua. In fact, in Aramaic, probably in Hebrew, his mother probably called him Yeshua. Yeshua. Same name. So it wouldn't have been all that odd. Why do we call him then Jesus? Because of the Greek, actually. In the Greek, the word Yeshua is translated 
Jesus, Jesus. Feel free to call on the name of Yeshua if it makes you feel like more spiritual somehow. I don't, it's not the point. God saves. His name means God saves. He is the salvation and there is no other name. The name Jesus. Matthew 1 says, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus. Have you trusted him as your savior? Asking him to forgive you for your sins. Is he your savior? I'm not talking about, oh yeah, my parents believe that. Oh yeah, I got drug into church today because apparently all these wild people believe it. No, do you believe it? There's no other name by which we are saved. There's no other name to which you'll find peace. There's no other name that is, is where true blessed total contentment comes from. There's no other name. How do I fix my marriage? Well, there's a lot of helps out there. There's a lot of good books, good advice. There's things you can do. There's no other name. That's the true husband to your wife, wife to your husband, the one that really can fix this. Because you know what's really going on is something underneath that only God can heal. A massive vacuum and a massive hole in your heart that only God can fill. There's no other name. Somehow my time is at, if y'all look back there right now, it says negative 130. I've been, have I been preaching for two hours? I have no idea how long I've been going. I've got one more point, though. Take it or leave it. Please take it. Reason number four. Because Jesus is the supreme sovereign over all. This is how the writer of Hebrews finishes. He is at the throne, verse 8. He is the anointed, verse 9. He is, sitting, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, verse 13. He is the supreme, sovereign, king of kings. He is the very imprint of God. He is our picture. He's the spoken word of God. He's the son of God. He's our very savior. But let's not forget this really important one. He's in charge. He's, in, he's the king. He's the sovereign. I know everything looks like it's unraveling, but know this. It would be a lot worse unless he, he's, he's keeping his hand on the dial. And the stuff that's going on, he has a purpose for it. I don't always understand it. I certainly don't know what's going on, but he does. And he's in charge. And so when I start to feel discontentment, when I start to go, I'm feeling anxious, I don't know what's coming, his name is king. His name is ruler. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It says in Revelation 17, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords, King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 2, Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, listen to this, church. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is a both now and later statement. 
that those who desire true salvation, those who want to see God and know God and live out their purpose as destined by God, they will shout the name Jesus. They will bow the name, bow their knee to the name. They will bow to Christ. Those, hopefully like yourself, who say, I want what God's best is for me today. I want his salvation. Bow the knee. But here's what's true. And this isn't the only place that says it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Let me offer to you this. You should do it now. Because when you do it later, it'll have a different effect. In the last days, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Everyone will know the truth, the one they're denying now. And they're pushing off the greatest thing about their existence. And that is that they were created by God for a purpose. And that he loves them and has set them apart for holiness. And that they've decided to push that off. Maybe to the point of beyond their own death. Such that later on they'll finally see Jesus for who he is and bow their faces before him and cry out, He is the name above all names and it will be too late. I know this isn't a popular thing to say. More and more it seems like people avoid the conversation of heaven and hell. I'd rather just dive right in. Let's go. Because what the Bible says again and again is that there is a place for those who don't bow the knee here. And we'll... That's a place I would like for you and I to avoid. Because he's the king, not simply because of an inheritance, as so many of the world's kings. I was the son of the king, so now I'm the king. That would be true. He is the son of God. Therefore, he is king. But it's bigger than that. This verse tells us that it's bigger than that. Verse 9, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That something happened to the son after he sacrificed himself for us, that after he died and was resurrected, the name above all names, he received an even higher status. Such that now he's the very one we look to. Now he's king not just because he's the son. He's king because of victory. He's king because he's the general walking back into the city and all of us are throwing flowers and, and shouting because he's won the battle. The greatest battle of all. The battle over sin and death, Jesus has won it. And that's why he's king. That's why he's king. Kings have always been better received when they return in victory. He's more than just the son of God, and that would be enough. No, he's even greater. Because he's won our salvation by sacrifice. And here's what's true, my friend, this morning. He's our king, regardless of if we put him there or not. And if he's good and perfect king, which he is, the right choice, my friend, is you are king and I am not. You can test this theory, and I bet many of you have. Maybe you've been going a long time this way. I am king. There may be a God, but I am king, and he is not. I have found that the times I, I, I slouch back into that way of living, and I do it all the time, are the very times where I suffer the most. Not necessarily that you know the worst kinds of things happen to me, but that I just get myself in such a rut. I can't find peace and joy in a time like that where I decide I am in charge, I am king. And yet when I put him as king, no matter what I'm facing, I can find peace and joy. It's fascinating. 
I can be sick, I can be up, I can be down, it matters not. Because if he is king and I am not, then I can trust and I can have contentment. And I can go, I am your son and I don't care where you lead me. I know that you love me and you want what's best for me, so I have peace. Because he is king and I'm not. Do you believe this today? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior? It's important that we say it that way. So many of our Christian brothers and sisters believe that he is Savior, but not that he's Lord. This is why when we pray the sinner's prayer together every week, I'm careful to say, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Jesus, you are Savior of my life. Because he is both King and Messiah. I want to read to you something really quick. I don't really have time, but oh well. I found this online. I didn't write this, so don't think I'm like a genius or anything. I'm not. Here's Jesus is all we need in alphabetical order. The names of Jesus from A to Z. Sound good? Jesus is our Alpha, our Adonai, our Advocate, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the babe of Bethlehem, the bridegroom, the bread of life, the bright and morning star. Jesus is the Christ, the creator, the cornerstone, the chosen one, the chief shepherd. Jesus is the door, the day star, our delight, our deliverer. Jesus is Emmanuel, the exalted one from everlasting to everlasting. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the fountain of life, the foundation of the church, the friend of sinners. He is our guide, our good shepherd, the great physician. He is our hope, our healer, our help, our high priest. He is the great I am, our inheritance, the immortal one. He is our joy, our justification. He is the king of kings, the king of glory. He is the Lord, the life the love, the light of the world, the living water, the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah, the Master, the Mediator, the Messenger, the Man of Sorrows. He is the Nazarene, the new wine, the new covenant, the name that is above every name. He is the Omega, the offering of sin, the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the Passover, the propitiation for sin, the prince of peace. He is the quieter of the storms of my life and a quickening spirit. He is our redeemer, the rock of our salvation, the rose of Sharon, the resurrection and the life. He is the savior, the shepherd, the suffering servant, the son of God. He is the truth he is our teacher, our great treasure. Jesus is the upholder of all things, the unblemished Lamb of God. Jesus is the vine, the vicarious sacrifice, the victor over the grave. Yes, he is the way, the word made flesh, the wisdom of God, our wonderful counselor. And I know y'all been waiting on this. How in the world does X fit? <laughs> Take a leap. He is the expected Messiah, the exalted Lord. Jesus is our yoke fellow. He is our yes and amen. 
Jesus is the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Zion's holy king. And these aren't even the biblical names in total, which you gave us two of, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh. And there were a long list of those. This is our Jesus. Have you believed in him as Savior and Lord? Why are you waiting? And if you're running into people in your life, what do they think about the name? Let this be on the tip of your tongue. His name is greater. Let's pray now together, church.